0: this is the sff audio podcast hi i'm jesse
1: hi i'm paul i'm not clear (laughs) hi i'm
2: marissa
0: hi i'm evan
2: hi i'm amy
0: and we're going to talk about Astounding John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and the Golden Age of Science Fiction by Alec Navalali, uh a, both a book and an audiobook. book. Um, and I think that's important. I, what, if, if I think of the legacy of my website, and this book has got me thinking about legacies a lot, um, my legacy is that I was really into audio before, uh, uh, that is, audio books. Before it was popular. Um,
3: oh, the original cool guy. Well,
0: yes. yeah, we're yeah. at least ahead of the curve. I I, right. I I still like being read to. You know, like my mom for Christmas is reading me a book. Is <laughs> she? I up, yeah, I, over, I, go, I go over to her house. Uh, she says, "Do you want a chapter?" I said "Yes."
3: That is adorable. Yeah, it's nice. I love
0: right? that. It's nice to be read to, and. Uh, It's you know like all media you know it's it's it comes out of some other media and and the thing is it's a book like this a book with footnotes up to Wazu what is how many pages hundred pages of footnotes wow Um, it 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 wouldn't normally be subject to an audiobook but that when I mean by normally is like twenty years ago now if your book is not an audiobook Evan if your book is not an audiobook, Evan, then your book really doesn't <laughs> exist as an actual book, okay? Because nobody wants to read anymore. <laughs> People want to read audiobooks. I know this because I'm everybody, okay? We want to
3: download it. downloaded. so download it in
0: Yeah,
4: yeah, please. Yeah, um, I've gotten to the stage in my my, you know, because how long I've, since I've been in graduate school and reading this stuff and. I, I just get bored reading kind of history books, and and I don't do it that often. But I've, I've since you've been having me do these, I've enjoyed really enjoyed, enjoyed these nonfiction audio And it's,
3: Nonfiction I'm is so of, good on audio. I, I find
4: the, yeah. I, I'm kind of rekindling some pleasure in 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 reading this stuff mm-hmm. that I didn't have. Now these are particularly well well written books, but on the other hand, there were several times in this in this. Um, well, listening to this, I didn't have the physical book where I'm like, I want to see the footnote. How does he know? Mm,
3: that? Me too, yeah. Where,
4: where did he get this from?
3: I'm totally going to buy the the paperback or the Kindle version as well.
4: It is actually kind of handy. I'm,
0: I'm looking at it now and everything is cited. So I, I was, while I was listening, I'm like, Really? He said that? And I'm like, There's citations. Because <laughs> um, there's a lot of, you know, yeah. Cite, here's on page 468, citation 97, quote, Fuck Eando Binder. (laughs) Asimov, in memory yet green. Page 591. It's all cited, right? (laughs) So, uh, damn it, Asimov. (laughs) I bid. (laughs) 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 Lambasted Dianetics, I bid. 595. Yeah, so um, it's all cited. And and also, I think beyond... uh, I, one of the things I was thinking about this book, which was nice, is is even though it is long, what is it, like 13 hours, um, I I was like, oh, it's not padded out. There's so many fucking books that are way yeah. too long. And the, uh, sorry, carry hit It's This is not padded out. I didn't feel like, I mean, I, I, f- I felt it was almost, okay, I don't want to hear more about their sexual problems. I like these guys. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't tell me more about how their wife's swapping again. <laughs> like, I don't want to know that stuff. However, um, it's, it's, good, it's good that it's been documented. And uh, I, I do not cite the um, this book as having anything uh, extra put in just to make it the right length, which is, right. I think, a, a problem for a lot of books. And, and it shows up in the audio format as well. I mean...
3: Yeah, it's such a good story. Like the way it's written, it was so easy to read. I actually was almost going to cancel this podcast because I didn't, I was traveling and I didn't have time to listen to the audiobook while I was away. Mm -hmm. And I just um, thought, well, I'll just have a little listen. Like that was two days ago. I'll just check Mm -hmm. it out. And I was totally riveted and I canceled all my other plans for the weekend. Wow. just read this book in two days because it was just so engrossing and so well written. It's like, I can't miss this one.
0: (laughs) It's important. I, I, I I knew a lot of this stuff sort of on the periphery. I'd read a book, um, maybe you've read it, Amy, um, called um, The Amazing, The Astounding, and The Unknown. Yes. uh, By Paul Malmont. I I think I had him on the podcast, too, uh, three or four hundred episodes ago. And uh, that one is sort of a fictionalized um, retelling of, but not that fictionalized, retelling of The Time at the Navy Yard, which is a, I think, a pretty important part of this book. Um, mm. Those guys hanging out and basically not being happy, contributing to the war in the way they were. Um, and it's, it's interesting. Like, there are, if I have some quibbles with the book, uh, there was like, I don't know, some commentary on some of the stories, and some of them is dead on, and then other ones like, Actually, I I will fear no evil is actually pretty good. I don't know why you're saying it's one of his worst books. <laughs> I mean, it's not great, but it's not his worst. He's got worse than that. So uh, I I didn't find like massive surprises around every turn. Um, but uh, there were a lot of details on the formation and the timing, uh, and and really the fact that John W Campbell is so important. Mm-hmm. I I guess we if you're a little younger than me, um, or maybe just as young as me, because I, I didn't grow up under Campbell, right? I, I grew up under, I don't know, Omni, Ben Bova, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I to find to find the old issues of Astounding is is going back in time before I I was in into it. So, uh, what with two kind of confusing awards in uh, science fiction industry, right? Uh, John W. Campbell award and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award, I guess they're a bit confusing as to w- which is for which, yeah, right, but the Hugo uh, I think people have sort of forgotten that Hugo stands for Hugo Gernsback he He kind of needs his own version of this too. Um, although I think I've somehow I think I've I've read it or heard it already. I, I can't think of one as comprehensive as this mm-hmm. and 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 the one person who's completely missing from this book is Wells. H.G. Wells. I know it's not focused on on uh, his period, but it's it's uh, it's like Olaf Stapleton not mentioned at all, right? It's because he's not really the focus, and he's overseas, right? That right. Arthur C. Clarke issue, the fact that Arthur C. Clarke isn't in here much, it's mm-hmm. because he wasn't in Astounding, right? right. So. Uh, all the gripes and sort of, well, what about this, are not legit. In my in my own mind, my, my complaints are not very legit, is what I'm saying.
1: Have any of you read the Larry Niven short story, The Return of William Proxmire?
0: Yes. No, nope. uh, oh, I, I think you've talked about it on the podcast I, before. I, I,
1: I have, so I'll, I'll mention it again for listeners. That's basically a time travel story where William Proxmire goes back in time to kill science fiction – by curing Robert Heinlein of his tuberculosis in the, in, thir, in the 30s, it doesn't work. But now, after having listened to this book, I think that Proxmire had the wrong target. That The right target it th- would have been <laughs> to uh, fix up uh, Campbell in some way so that he didn't wind up uh, starting astounding. That might have changed science fiction and uh, the author mentions it beyond all recognition and possibly not even yeah we'll come to the prominence it did in other words heinlein didn't start science fiction according to lee's thesis in this book it's campbell that did at least modern science fiction as far as 1939 to uh
4: 1950 Mm -hmm. yeah amy you're the you're like the intellectual historian here right and you know this the, the book talks about this a little bit with with Arthur uh, Arthur C. Clarke and why he's not in it, right? And to what degree are these these kind of markets for these kinds of genres really nationalized, especially in this period that this book is talking about—the 20s, 30s, 40s—the Cold War, the the rise of nationalism in Europe. You know, it is like after that age of globalization in the 19th century, right, there was that turn towards the nativism, right?
2: Right. And
4: there's a fascism, all that. And what effect did that have, like, on the cultural industry of these societies?
2: A profound one. Mm-hmm. And partic- I, I think in a way, Gernsback and the pulps were. Uh, We're trying to bridge those gaps. So you have Gernsback with amazing stories and, most importantly, the creation of the Science Fiction League, intentionally trying to make that uh, a larger science fiction self-aware community, and that starts to take root. But at the same time, well, not at the same time, but shortly thereafter, uh, once you have the... Sort of dialogue across the pond, as it were, between the United States and and Great Britain, and you start having uh, fan groups developing on both sides, and the uh, you know World uh, uh, Science Fiction Convention and such. Then you have the war, and that just tears everything apart. And so. Even, I mean, we're even dealing with that now in terms of the retro Hugo's uh, trying to patch up those those years um, uh, where either it was before we had this this larger community, or when that community was uh, disrupted by the war. Mm-hmm. The the I think World War Two and building up knowing it was coming um, those in particular had a tr- tremendous impact on severing what was a fledgling uh, uh, dialogue there and and really creating a, a period of isolation for both sides.
4: And then and then to extend on that. Um to what degree is this like revolution that Campbell's after, right? To try to make science fiction connected to the actual science and to be a pioneer, right? To be the microcosmic god narrative. Right. right. To actually be the incubator of the ideas that will drive humanity into the future. How much is that, you know, a distinctly new worldish kind of thing? Is something I wondered when I was listening to this book you know you know could that could those ideas i mean asimov has to come to america for all sorts of reasons right he probably wouldn't have survived the war right um, but you know but it's beyond that right he, with not being in america he, you know he wouldn't have been in that conversation and is Campbell's, you know the the this author i i have the audio book version so I, I keep missing his name what's the guy's name who wrote the uh, book uh, Cal- Lee. Lee.
0: yeah
4: yeah Nibala, Nibala uh, Lee. All right, uh, you know he puts this on Campbell, right? That he's the one who who saw what science fiction could be, but you know is it also something that's distinctly coming out of American cultural ideas of that '30s, '40s, especially in the '40s and '50s? I don't know. I, I was these are just the things I was thinking about. Mm-hmm.
0: I was thinking about that too, and you know it's mentioned in here somewhere that uh, that back or overstock or extra issues of astounding were sent as ballast to the uk and i know i know that you know finding copies of um of those magazines at least over certain years was much harder but then one of the things i didn't send you all um on twitter was all the foreign editions there's australian editions and british editions Of astounding, so they are eventually getting them. They're they're going around the world, but that's after the after the war and after you know the British didn't have a magazine tradition of science fiction until the war and after. They had fanzines here and there. They they are talking about about the about the British magazines, but Hugo Gernsback being an immigrant, being I mean he was nuts. In the same way that Campbell was nuts, but for electronics right so mm-hmm. like he was just like we're all gonna invent our own televisions and like they're doing it at home you know um, and they're they're doing all the radio gizmos there's a there is a, a really good book on um, on the industry of uh, home home amateurs and and how those home amateur basement ham radio operators and stuff sort of morph into the science fiction uh, reader.
2: Hmm. And That's and you have so the Tom Swift creating his, you know, yeah. um a, a tripphibian atomic car right the idea right. that any young boy that even comes out of the whole Edison aid moment again if you're yep. talking about the the um, uh, fact that that the United States was a particularly fertile soil the stories that came out of Edison and what Edison could create the, those were things that, that Hugo Gernsback was very excited about in the reports you know of the radio boys who could use yeah. their radios to do X, Y, and Z. And it's a very short step to go from there uh, to in your basement, you know, you can create the the starship that will take you into space, right? Mm-hmm.
0: And those magazines, the electro- Electronic Experimenter, there was a couple other ones um, that Hugo Gernsback were, was running, they actually did run science fiction. They didn't have, have that term yet, right? Science science fiction. Is how it goes into amazing and and I've read both. I I, I feel like I'm bragging because it's uh, most people wouldn't care, but I'm like I have a huge pulp fiction collection digitally, and it includes tons of issues of Amazing and Astounding. And reading Amazing is a different experience than reading Astounding. Like mm-hmm. by a huge margin, Amazing has it's sort of more open and broader. And Astounding is much more, there are a lot more technical drawings um, and a lot more weird editorials um, and also <laughs> some great art, you know, some great, really inspiring art. And, you know, the the fact that Campbell is pointed to as sort of the father of science fiction, if, if H.G. Wells is the grandfather and I guess um, Shelley is the great-grandmother. <laughs> whatever. If you do some sort of I think it's true in that he was really he really sort of took over the form and turned it not into space opera only, and mm-hmm. into something that much more resembles. It, it, it is a, astounding to me that he didn't publish. He didn't publish Larry Niven. Like this is a guy who should have been right front page center of as soon as he starts writing. It was exactly the sort of stuff he should have wanted, but he was off in his—I uh, don't know—drives. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: And that...
0: I, I, I tried to send you guys a sample exactly of of those weird columns, right? That he's right. And I was like, "How is this? How people are weird, right? This guy's a weird dude. <laughs> <laughs> so weird, and they're all weird, right? Hubbard even comes across kind of sympathetic in this, and I'm like, wow." <laughs> i don't want to feel sympathy for him but it sounds like this is a pathetic figure who's somehow conned his way to reality being not as terrible for him
1: tra there's a there's a there's a tragedy to john w campbell that comes through this not this story for me it's like he he started all this and then fell into a mire of pseudoscience and it's heartbreaking and belief. it's like mm. this guy that helped start modern science fiction as we know it fell to this that it it tore my heart out
2: in yeah way, I, I, how the... I
1: didn't expect that when going to this book i thought oh this will be an interesting look at the history field we have only seen stuff at the margins as most biography Heinlein's lines letters stuff he's wrote in expanded universe stuff i've heard so this was the actual first real deep dive for me into all of the subjects and i'm listening reading this and once once he starts going into die next and down the pseudoscience method, like, oh, no, John W. Campbell, no, no.
3: Yeah, it's totally like watching a, like a horror movie or a suspense movie where the first half of the biography, it's so uplifting. Like, the stuff he's doing is just... You know, you get really excited for him, and then once Hubbard comes into the picture and starts filling his head, it's just a tragedy. Like it's,
0: <laughs> you can just see it but all it, it worked on lots of people. It worked on Heinlein, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Heinlein was go- was all in on it, and the only person who seemed to like I don't know about this was Isaac Asimov, right? Mm-hmm. He, I- Asimov never bought into Hubbard, as far as I can tell.
3: And he was always, through the whole biography, a little bit more separate from everyone else anyway. Yeah. Like, he was just his own little being.
2: Yeah. One thing but, oh, go for it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, one thing that strikes me as, as fascinating, I, I do... Teach this era, and so i I knew that the tragedy was coming, but even though I was braced for it, it still like you all said broke my heart as well mm-hmm. but it's it's really interesting to see that in the first part, where Campbell really is creating his revolution and really is nurturing these authors and and yes his his blind spots and his uh prejudices get sort of calcified into that vision as well, mm-hmm. but um he is he is demanding the the good fiction and the good science both and what what amazes me is that even when the turn comes and he himself falls and he pushes everyone away what comes after that's so necessary for the growth of science fiction the new wave you know the harlan ellisons the the ursula k le guins the the, the things that came after that they're using what what he provided because By turning, transforming science fiction into this machine for generating analogies, he's given them then the tools to push back against against him when he falls you know Mm. and I think that's a a fascinating sort of part two of the tragedy he's still influential and he's still making his mark even in the reaction against his descent into pseudoscience and and sort of self delusion because uh they're using the science fiction he and helped to create that's uh, so
3: true he gave them this great power that they can... <laughs> to
1: resist, yeah, resist uh, his bad worst uh, impulses.
4: <laughs> have any of you read uh, Asimov's introduction, or is it like a preface to Dangerous Visions?
2: Oh, yes. Uh, oh,
4: I, I can't quote it verbatim. I don't have it in front of me. But I was... I thought about that several times uh, while reading this book. Uh, and... I don't know. Maybe, Amy, you remember it more than I do. Or maybe you have it right there. Um, it, he says something like, "Like I've been asked to write this introduction, but I'm really not qualified. We're like the squares. Right? We're not fit for this new age. It's it's very polite, but it, it's kind of a, you know, I'm not really comfortable with this stuff, but the huh. torch is being passed a little bit.
2: That's and, that's exactly what I was going to say. There's a passing yeah. of the torch there. Well, when you look at Heinlein,
4: who... You know, influence a sexual revolution with Stranger in a Strange Land and you got the pseudoscience stuff. There there is kind of a a, kind of a cultural revolution vibe in the stuff that's coming out of the Campbell circle as well. So Asimov I think was being a bit coy, maybe. Or maybe it's just him. He's the square one and these others. He was definitely a square. (laughs)
0: The (laughs) the the funny part is he's also what what Well, somebody, there's a great quote in here that says, uh, well, you don't smoke, you don't drink, and he says, what do you do? Oh, I fuck a lot, man. (laughs) It's like, what? Is Asimov, seriously? Um, and like, okay. That was the, I mean, I, I I didn't think about that part when I'm, you know, when you're reading Asimov, it's almost like reading Clark, it's almost sexless, right? Mm -hmm. Even, even, and it's mentioned his, uh, his, his big book, I can't remember, I remember, I, I think I've done a podcast on it, um, uh, the one with the aliens with three three sex, uh, three genders? The gods themselves. The gods themselves, okay. Uh, and I'm like, there sure is a lot of weird alien sex in this book. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in the middle section, yes. But it's 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 just so distanced from, you know, like, he, he mostly talks about robots. And, you know, uh, Susan Calvin is not, you know, uh, the fact that she's female doesn't play a massively important role in her character, right? So it's funny. There are are some really strange things that you find out about these these guys. Like, uh, I knew Heinlein was weird, but I read lots about Heinlein's weirdness. But uh, a lot of his, uh, you know, just seeing these lines or hearing these lines coming out of his mouth, it's like, wow, I didn't know they would say that it's a there are a lot of revealing um things going on here and uh, uh, naval lee is uh, i think he's trying to show the the um the role of the wives as well
3: yeah that was Uh, so interesting yeah i I love love their presence in this book i want
2: the biography of k torrent I think that's the next book we need to have. I'm looking through this. Yeah, I was thinking
4: about that's Secretary, right? Campbell's secretary. Or that's what that's not even the proper name, right? She was like uh,
2: Yeah, she basically her title?
4: Yeah, she was doing everything. And as as a labor historian, I always you know, one of the my pet peeves is always like when people talk about like the Magellan Voyage or something when you know, he didn't even make it and all the work was being done by other people, right? But Mm -hmm. he gets all the credit. It's the same with these kinds of things, right? I certainly can't I'm not saying Campbell wasn't important, but you know, there's a workforce behind that. I don't know how much, how big, but you know, probably not as not, not a huge number of people. But the focus on this uh, woman, again, I don't have the text copy, so the name's going to slip my mind. Yeah, um,
0: that's it, that's one of the uh, problems with audiobooks. Is, yeah. Uh, but you can't make you can't uh, yeah. concretize the names because he can't even spell it or wrote it down.
4: Yeah, she seems such an important figure, and I need to know more about her.
2: Right. The, the magazine outlived him. It didn't out... I mean, she was. Yeah. She could run it, you know, and and Heinlein even mentions at one point that that, uh, that Tarrant and his own wife, who was his first editor, uh, could, could take over the, the magazine that Campbell wasn't really even needed if he wanted to join the war effort in a different way, mm. because they were, they were the main uh engines there that were keeping the whole thing running anyway. Uh, I think he appreciated more than anyone did how much uh, was going on there behind the scenes.
0: I feel like there should be a um, a book for the other magazines because <laughs> uh, honestly I used to think oh astounding, it's so important. And the more I look, the, the more I like, I, I don't like Astounding as a magazine generally because well, one of the reasons is because a lot of it's still under copyright, which is a problem <laughs> for me because I'm trying to bring things into the public domain. They were pretty consistent about renewals after a certain point. Um, uh, and uh, I think those same problems are mentioned in here with uh, Heinlein getting mad at Campbell for not, you know. They're not wanting it to go up to the bosses and say, can we give Heinlein his his publishing rights back if if he even didn't lose them? So uh, one one of the things I, I find is like I don't look at it as much as I used to because it's just not as profitable in terms of bringing things into the public domain. But I also note like Philip K. Dick, and it's mentioned in this book, he has one story in astounding. If Philip Kiddick wrote, what, 150 stories. Uh, if you're not in the Astounding during the 1950s, what's going on, right? One yeah. story, and it's not even his best, it's just, ah. it, it's imposter. It's not, I, okay. I don't know why that one is particularly picked by Campbell, um, but he's in Galaxy and he's in all the, uh, you know, planet stories. He's, he's in everything S F. he's in that a lot, right? Well,
4: he's. It was explained just, in the.
0: Yeah, Go yeah. It. it was
4: explained as that he he, he didn't like posthumans, right? Mm-hmm. And Campbell yeah. he wants you know, was after the Superman, right? Yeah. So it was Dick's this uh, fear of the posthuman. But did, and, and did so you get send a posthuman like story Man. to Campbell? And Campbell's like, don't take stories from this guy anymore, because that's not the only thing Dick wrote. Obviously. No,
0: but like you can see the influence, like the Golden Man, right? This is a yeah. story of a superhuman, right? <laughs> who's who's an idiot.
1: <laughs> yeah, not exactly he a camera story. It's it brought to humanity, right?
0: Right. And, and, and this is, like, people, even people who are not writing in the magazine are writing in reaction to it. And, uh, like, I really like Galaxy magazine. It has a lot of Arthur C. Clarke. It has a lot of Philip K. Dick. It's got a lot of, um, uh, the, in the aesthetic of um, of H.L. Gold, uh, mm-hmm. is just a different aesthetic, right? He's much more sociological. He has demolished man in there and uh, yeah he didn't take Bester Jesus Christ if he had taken more Bester but if Campbell but, had but taken the, Bester the, we'd the, have more Bester
1: but did right? Bester submit to Astounding do we know that yeah, uh,
0: yeah, yeah and he, I think he was in Astounding actually before before um took over. um I I'm pretty sure it was Astounding it might have been one of those other ones with a uh, there's an amazing Astounding and there's another one with an A that um but or, or just prior to the war, I think um, it wasn't his best work. But if he was writing for Astounding in the fifties, anyway, like Heinlein was writing, or Hubbard, or you know, Asimov was in it practically every issue, that would have been so important. And and we see we see him as a as a champion of science fiction. I also see him as kind of a, a blocker, right? And and Day the cheaper. yeah. Cheaper. yeah. But, but there's a flurry of other magazines that come out after, like, in 52 and 53 and 54. And, and Paul you know, he's, he's a great editor. He's bringing all sorts of weird stuff and trying all sorts of interesting things. So you can't really understate, I think, the power that this guy wielded in terms of uh, idea. Like, uh, even th- there's a story, I, and I always talk to Scott when we started this podcast about how important the cold equations is as a story mm, mm-hmm. it's a terrible story in the sense that it's very badly written i don't wonder i don't enjoy reading it but the point that it's making and the point that that campbell was trying to make with it which is yes you have to keep rewriting this until you get it right <laughs> you have to keep fixing it until you get it right and finally he got it right i i think that this is such an important it's it's like an iconic in a highly, highly important story for what it does, which is say, this is what we are talking about. This is, mm-hmm. in the same way that Microcosmic God is is sort of a, this is how far we're go. this is how far we can go, this is what, it's, it's like a Star Trek story in a sense, which is a very weird thing because it, Microcosmic God is not a Star Trek story, right? But it, it, it's a Star Trek story in the sense that here is a an episode of something that we can imagine happening. And if this can happen, then what does that mean, right? That's what the power of the cold equations is. And so when he he can set people up to do a story like Nightfall, right, which is, again, I don't enjoy reading Nightfall. I think it's an important story. I don't think it's terribly written. Uh, But it does exactly what Campbell was trying to aim at, And he does it through the Isaac Asimov, which
2: is amazing
0: or astounding.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He is a fascinating study in what editors can do. What you just said, and I agree with you completely about cold equations and how important that is. And the idea that he would seed ideas to different authors and know that he could use the same idea multiple times because mm-hmm. if he picked these different authors he would get completely different stories from mm-hmm. them based on the same prompt it, mm-hmm. it was fascinating the way Naval Lee traces his incredible strengths in that regard and also knowing for example how many times he could turn Asimov down before he would get the good story um, but also his amazing blind spots uh, as an editor and how that was influential as well one of the stories that stuck with me he could ask people to imagine an intelligence as potent as the highest um, in human intelligence we can conceive of but completely different than human intelligence and how would that intelligence work while in the same breath saying he didn't think his readers could put themselves in the position of uh, a black person Point of view character in a story. Yeah, um, and so he misses out on Samuel R. Delaney. You know, he again. misses out on so much. Yeah. Yes, and so he could imagine a leap of imagination in one hand, and that seems a huge leap, and then limit his readership. You know, uh, uh, or or place a limit on what they could do by saying, I don't think our readers could make that particular leap that's what of I... imagination. Yeah, that's what I always
3: find so fascinating about racism and homophobic people is like how compartmentalized it is. Like it's so strange that they can have that one thought in that part of their brain and then just be so nurturing and compassionate and understanding in other areas. Like, he was a perfect example of that. Yeah, right.
2: And wow. to see Dune as a superhero or Superman story, but not understand what the sequel to Dune was doing, and so <laughs> miss out on that. You know, when arguably, you know, Frank Herbert was doing something really, really interesting there, but that was threatening his notion of the Superman, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: yeah. I, I know uh, one person who doesn't get a much of a mention in here, if at all, is Mac Reynolds. I, I'm a big fan of Mac Reynolds. He he started in the 50s and he was writing up into the 70s at least. Um, and I think of him as being highly influential uh, or influenced by Campbell, and yet they are obviously very uh, politically different people. He had a lot of stories yeah. in there. Uh, have you read a lot? Anybody else here read a lot of Mac Reynolds?
2: No. 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 Okay. I'm so f- familiar, but not not expert or anything.
0: So he, he was like a communist, uh, California, Mexico uh, area guy, and he, he, he wrote. Um, uh, a series of books, uh, one of them is Black man's Burden. Um, they're set in either Africa or in the United States. He's got a lot of black characters. Um, he's not a black man himself or wasn't a black man himself. but he also would like put some radically uh, interesting ideas into his SF like he has um, uh, he has this book and I, I really want somebody to make an audiobook out of it because it has been out of print forever. It's, uh, it's it's like I think it's commune 2000 or something like that and it's it's set in a distant future where uh, the, the problem is scarcity. Uh, that is there is none <laughs> except in the problem of jobs. No, nobody has a job and everybody wants one and and so there's a there needs to be a revolution because everybody has guaranteed annual income and that makes everybody sort of bored. They want to have meaningful work. And he was writing stuff that was approaching that in Astounding. And it's, I I, I didn't see his name. It's sort of like after the, after Campbell's uh, sort of decline. But on the other hand, you see people are influenced by him, even when they're not writing for him. So, Heinlein's Tunnel in the Sky, uh, or is it Tunnel in the Sky? He's, he's got a number of times where he, he says, yeah, it didn't matter that the main character was black the whole way through, did it? <laughs> or, it didn't matter to you the whole way through that the, ki- the kid you thought was uh, uh, all-American was actually Filipino. Right? He's always... That Heinlein did that. Yeah, Heinlein's always sort of reacting to... Right, right. Yeah, of, ...of... the. Uh, and the wild claims that Campbell would make uh, uh, as um, one of my uh, I, I studied a lot of philosophy and one of my professors was trying to explain to me because I, I couldn't get it. What the difference was between a rationalist and an empiricist. Um, this guy, Campbell, was definitely a rationalist. There are people who work out all these massively uh, detailed sort of theories about the reality in their own head and sort of don't look at the data and and are drawn to the data first right mm-hmm. and w- work out this massive massive uh, you know theoretical underpinnings for how everything works and that is what you're reading in those columns uh, he he says here's how drunk driving should work right here's how this should work here's how theory of race should work and 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 anything that doesn't fit his theory is well, you just don't understand. You're you're not you're not clear yet. <laughs> right? oh. I mean, he's a, uh, you can see why he he, he wants to take he wants to turn the magazine into a technical sort of journal of of like we're going to invent things here, and that's not how science actually works, right? The way science works is there's a problem we can't figure it out. Hey, look at this other problem over here. I wonder if we and then somehow we figured it out right we bring the two disparate sort of phenomena together like the find the fact that uh, the germans are really good at grinding lenses <laughs> we wouldn't have any <laughs> you know eyeglass reading lenses um you wouldn't think that that was really important until you uh, apply a couple of them together and point them at the moon right or at, at uh, jupiter And then, oh, wow, we really found some stuff out here. You can't work it all out in your own head. And that seems to be his major problem. So his racism is not based on how mean he is or even uh, necessarily the culture around him. It's just he's trying to work it all out in his own head. His his
4: brief encounters with reality. Can we – obviously, I agree with you with the way science works. But just given his historical context, you know where he could look and say, you know, Verne said submarines, and then we have submarines. And H.G. Mm-hmm. Wells said planes in war, and then there's planes in war. And then the atom, right? Of course, the atom was so key to Campbell's kind of futurism, mm-hmm. right? That it did seem in that time that science fiction was was leading the was pulling the cart, science. Hmm. so I, I think you know now it may not seem that way right no like these future things that people dream up never come to pass really. well like, uh, the whole i think have... the flying car and stuff right we well still... we
0: have a legacy of this though right so um the p i think i think there is a line in here about how all the people at nasa were inspired by to get, sort of go into their careers by heinlein and and you know rocket ship galileo is a very important book right it's about it's it's tom swift except in the rocket age right, right. it's yeah. it, it's a such a and it's the first of the juveniles I, I i know it's powerful because i was born way after that book came out and as soon as i started reading these Heinlein juveniles i'm like man I gotta get them all. You gotta collect them all. You gotta read them all. Uh, and I, I'm, I've been reading Nancy Drew lately, and it's it's not the same. It's fun, but it's not the same kind of feeling. And right. maybe it's because I'm old, <laughs> so instead of reading it when I'm young. Um, but it's not the same because it's not science. It's not about the invention and technology and the powers of of science and. And if you can get up there, if you can get up to the moon, you'll find out, oh, the Nazis are there, right? It's action. It's fun. It's excitement. It's it's everything. And it's inspiring. And so you, you see Elon Musk, right? Everything he does is not based on, uh, oh, i got to make more money. <laughs> it's, would this be cool? Yes, it would be totally cool. And, and he's pushing in all directions. And wherever it gives, that's where he gets traction and, and stuff happens. And that, uh, he has been inspired by it. We've also had lots of people who are badly inspired by You know, like, um, I think of some, Paul Krugman's, uh, you know, he's famously a fan of uh, um Foundation series, right? Um, and it's like, well, yeah, he's right, but it's also fictional. So there, there is a danger in, 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 sort of believing too much in the fiction and that you see that with campbell right he thinks he's he's doing science and he's not doing science he's not uh, he doesn't understand how science works exactly but Mm -hmm. he's been trained in some of it so he knows some of it it's it's a really weird tension
2: i think you you hit on something that really struck me here and that is a that he his desire for the scientific approach to all things, mm-hmm. so that ultimately takes him to psychology, right, and first history with the psychohistory work with Asimov, but but um, it, it left him vulnerable because he had this uh, – Campbell, that is – this mm-hmm. desire to just make everything scientific now, but also – he was among a group, if particularly if you take Heinlein and, and Asimov and, and several of these others, Van Vogt and others, who, who had some scientific training um, far beyond what he did, mm-hmm. right? And so he had some, enough to be dangerous, but he was yep. not the scientist that, say, Asimov was. And so – his enthusiasm for the ideas there did not follow through to the methodology. Right. And I think you can kind of see people leaving him in order of how well they were trained in scientific methodology, seeing how how far he was, uh, you know, Uh, drifting away from anything that was repeatable or anything that was, you know, long term in in terms of uh, the the tests, anything that that didn't start with this wholehearted, uh, both feet forward jumping into, uh, you know, the deep end of this, uh, we can make this science too attitude. Yeah,
0: that is exemplified by Hubbard, right? Who had absolutely no interest in science. <laughs> and or science
2: he's, fiction, for that matter.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, no. really. I mean, he 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 had an interest in writing. He had an interest in bragging. He had an no interest
3: in having people around him that he that could like push him up and that he could influence.
5: Yep.
1: Yeah, and 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 on the on the other end, Asimov the 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 one who has the PhD, the one the one that coolly uh stays pushes away from the whole Dianetics and the pseudoscience and is not sucked into that morass as, as Campbell and Hubbard and Ben Boat and others were.
0: And, and, I,
1: he had to sign stuff. trying to save himself
0: from the quicksand. And right. Somewhere in the middle is the Heinlein who's falling. Like you can see it. it it's really interesting. Look, I, I, I was telling people while I was reading this, it's a biography of, of the magazine astounding and which it kind of is. It's more, more Campbell than anybody else, but it's, it's, that's what I've been thinking. It's the biography of the, of the magazine Astounding. And I was thinking about how Heinlein, it's all the failings. Everybody's got a failing, right, In this book, um, if, if I had to pick one character who I, I'm least non-sympathetic, I don't know, I, who I'm like, okay, he failed less than everybody else, it's Asimov. Even though he was kind of a sexual asshole <laughs> going around pinching everybody. Mm. And, <laughs> and, and it's like, not that's not cool, man. And he even knows it's not cool, but once he gets addicted to sex, he just can't stop it, now, or whatever. I don't know. Um, and then the fact that his kid turns out to be a child uh, child sex video... Uh, I don't know. Whatever. That was not good. Um, he's he's a sort of a tragic figure in many respects. But on the other hand, he's consistently sort of smart in uh, you know seeing things as bunk when they are bunk. And the Heinlein who I always think of, you know, he's so brilliant in so many ways. He fucking falls for Hubbard because he's got the <laughs> uniform and he's got these... These I did this adventure and it's like that guy, you can tell. I don't know. I can yeah. tell. He's, a, he's like a, a lying used car salesman who's not good at lying.
3: And that's I, what... Like, I go to a lot of, like, uh, like lectures and stuff here about um, Scientology or um, cults and stuff, and that's what the people who are warning against cults say. It's like, it doesn't, it's not about your intelligence. Like, actually, mm. the most intelligent people are the ones that, um, you know, charismatic leaders and, and cult leaders can go after, and they get them easier. It's all you have to be lacking is that critical thinking thing, mm. that doubt, and yeah, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are.
2: I do think he, when he fell.
4: Out. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm just saying there must have been something about Elron Hubbard. I mean, we're reading the books about him, right? And yeah. We're looking at hindsight. If you were in a circle, maybe you'd have an entirely different impression of his. Yeah. His I, I mean, CRISPR doesn't translate that well from the page. Maybe a witty phrase or something. But I mean, it's the whole package. Who,
3: just... who made that great quote? I can't remember who it was that was sitting with him and saying, like, they just knew straight away they were looking into his eyes and there's some quote in the book about how he has those like guys eyes that are judging you to see like how much of this are you actually believing? Yeah. And they're like, Not much.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, when he fell out of, of interest with Hubbard, though. He fell hard. One of my favorite mm-hmm. uh, uh, quotes in the whole book is um, Heinlein writing to him saying, I no longer trust you. Yeah. Uh, mm. You are you may be a hero, but you're a phony gentleman. I'll give you money to get you out of a jam, mm. but I don't want you in my house. That's yeah. the
0: worst insult that Heinlein can ever give anybody. <laughs> exactly. Is <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, Here's some money. Please never speak to me again. <laughs>
1: Do you think, though, going going back to the previous thing, that Heinlein's physical isolation from the others helped save him from completely falling into the morass? If Heinlein, say, New Jersey, would 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 he have gone completely head over heels into this mess, into the Mm Dynex mess? Mm
0: -hmm. I think I think proximity would make his skepticism rise because hubbard hubbard comes back from these adventures right with broken legs and gonorrhea oh, God. <laughs> and then he tells the story and you you know if you see it every week and you can see that he's wild eyed this week because the gonorrhea has gone crazier, or his mental illness has gone crazy um it it is it's fascinating because w- 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 this is like a dissection of reality based on qu- on quotes and letters and and what people actually wrote. So you see it for how it was much better than the people who were living it at the time probably were seeing it, I think, at least Mm -hmm. in some respects. I'm sure there's some parts where we're not seeing it as well. But I was thinking about my own life, like going through, like if somebody went through all my email, right? (laughs) I'm sure they, they can find me kind of being an asshole here and there. And, the, and like if you only choose the asshole sections of Jesse's emails, God, that guy was an asshole, right? He didn't respond to this email. He didn't say anything about this. He made a, <laughs> uh, a joke that uh, <laughs> I, I sent Marissa a private tweet um, or direct message last night. I was like. I I was thinking of adding this to my Twitter profile. What do you think? I was like, I don't think, I I think I would offend people. And it it has nothing to do with offending people. It's just like a sort of a commentary on our times and a a private joke that I've been having Marissa for like, I don't know, a year or two. Right. Yeah. And 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 like, well, if you if you put that out there and then went went through it, I still think if I was in the room with Hubbard as I am. You know, knowledgeable as I am, after about age twenty, I would totally know what kind of guy he was, because I think he, uh, Hindline was blinded by, really blinded, and you can see it in his other, his other sort of beliefs as well. By patriotism, he thought that patriotism was so important, right? right. So that's why he supports the war in Vietnam, not because it it's a good thing, <laughs> or you know, like there's a. Uh, reason for it, or, or even like, um, you know, uh, and what he did, like he uh, he was, you know, he went and supervised people and he was good at it, but he wasn't really contributing the best way he could have, which was by propag- propagandizing science fiction, right? By making science fiction inspire people, which was, is what he was really good at. And we know that because after the war, he starts writing these juveniles that are so important. And so I'm still mad about Paul saying people shouldn't be handed out (laughs) these juvenile books because I think we need a renaissance of them. I know they're not perfectly uh, uh, PC today, uh, but they're so important. They're so influential. And, And a lot of that stuff sort of begins with Campbell pushing him and telling him, you know, this is the only way you can put po- like uh, Farnham Freehold makes a lot more sense now. Right? I, when I read that, I was like, "What's going on here?" And then, uh, as it says in this book, it says uh, it seems kind of problematic now because the the black overlords are cannibals as well as as uh, being black. And and he was trying to make a point about Campbell being wrong. That's that's why he put that in there. And he started thinking about the idea and made a book out of it. Makes a lot more sense now mm-hmm. when he's reacting mm-hmm. to Campbell.
2: You know, there's a way where a lot of this that is troubling about these individuals uh, gets overshadowed, though, by some, I think, some really hopeful. Uh, commentary about the fact that they were self aware that they were creating a community, mm-hmm. and these men were, in a sense, um, and I'm not, I am not in any of the positive things I'm going to say here, uh, including Hubbard, because <laughs> he doesn't deserve any uh, uh, positive comments. But, <laughs> but the rest of them, um, he was sort of the serpent in the garden, as it were. But the rest of them were were aware not only that that what they were doing was important but they thought it could be transformative i mean this whole idea of uh, creating the competent man mm-hmm. who could then go on was was the idea that if we raise the bar for our storytelling we will change readers and and for, you know we will enhance their own abilities to be critical we mm-hmm. will make them more demanding and then we will have to produce better but but also these men were were competitors in a sense and yet they treated each other like they were community Members and stuck with each other a lot longer than I think you know we might expect um, mm-hmm. watching each other's back in a lot of ways personally with jobs and things as well as with their creativity and I think the the reminder that um, there have always been wacky fandom wars where one fan group goes after the other fan group and you know one group gets kicked out of the con and mm-hmm. one group is spying on the other group those those kinds of d- dynamics were around a lot longer than the internet were a lot you know a lot longer even than the fan conventions of the 60s those have been around for, from the beginning but there's also been the self-aware sense that we're doing something that's important and the conversations we're having are important and I think Uh, given that they didn't all agree with each other and they were coming from very different backgrounds and also had these very real foibles, it's kind of amazing that they hung together for decades and even felt badly when they did cut themselves free from Campbell Mm -hmm. um, because they had this sense of personal loyalty to each other and to what they were trying to build together. That came through to me in a way that I I, I thought was – at least partially as important as the fact that, you know, these, <laughs> there were some problems there, too.
3: Mm-hmm. I felt the exact same thing reading this book, where it's so much about um, the the web of the people, like the community mm-hmm. of people, so it's not, it wasn't just like that fandom thing. I love that reminder that um, that there were still trolls and there were still these mm-hmm. communities and factions back in those days, just way slower with the mail <laughs> than, than a tweet. <laughs> I um, like the story of the first World Con. yeah but then also all of that combined with the community that these guys had which was just amazing to see how all those friendships were evolving and how close they got like swapping wives or whatever as well oh. and then on top of that with the woman like with the, the editors who were sitting there nurturing these men who were nurturing other men like it was just all mm. so interconnected it's really fun to read
0: yeah, there's a. Um, I, I went looking for it. Uh, it's on the Alec Novella Lee blog. Um, <laughs> Donald A. Walheim was a better troll than anyone living today. <laughs> <laughs> <was so> <laughs> um, and the thing is, he was. It sounds like he was a troll. He was trolling yeah. people, but he went on to become an editor who uh, was very important to science fiction. Right? If 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 we think about like he's a he's a troll today. In 30 years, will he still be a troll? Well, maybe he'll still be a troll, but maybe he'll have matured some and or, uh, and and be contributing something positive instead of just trolling people. Right? Mm. And and the thing is, is uh, that I think is really you know uh, he wrote mimic. He he he's largely I, I think he was the editor of the uh, the Ace Doubles, right? Am I right? i sure yes, yes. The, I think
3: editor. so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So he's. He's, like, super important. He bought a lot of Philip K. Dick, right? Right. Um, he, he uh, this troll who is working against um, sort of uh, happy families and community, they're all just sort of working themselves. I mean, it, it's interesting seeing Asimov as a youth, and I'd seen him in other things as a youth at the candy store, you know, trying to convince his dad to let him read the magazines. man. That's one place I would go. I I think somebody was, uh, you know, I put out a lot of covers, a lot of old um, things, and somebody said, uh, "Well, if wouldn't, isn't that your idea of heaven or fantasy? Right? Is is to go back in a time machine and go to the newsstands and wow, Asimov had it so lucky, could read any any pulp magazine except for the Shadow or whatever it was, (laughs) and and that is something powerful, right?" the power of picking up one of of these magazines. You see it on the cover. A rocket ship crashed on the planet and some aliens walking in the background. Mm -hmm. And it's as astounding. And then you start reading the story.
3: Yeah, and the author of this book, I saw something on his website where he said that one thing missing from this book is um, to talk about the history of the covers Mm. and how important they are and that he almost thinks they're, if not as important as the writers, possibly more important. So Mm. So... He's working on um, – I think he's putting stuff on his website now. He's like, there's a mm. whole other part to th- that you should look at mm-hmm. with this book alongside it, which is the art.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, that the was, interior, wasn't that the origin uh, of Astounding? They needed, the, they needed to fill up the space, right? So they needed another mm-hmm. magazine.
0: Isn't that, not that an interesting? A little bit of technology, right? A little bit of technology. Uh, you, you'd print the s- paper separate – the covers separately – this company has 12, 12 slots and only nine magazines. Let's make three new ones. What do they go? <laughs> pitch pitch me something, people. You want a knitting magazine? Okay, what else? You you want a science fiction? Okay, well that's fine. And we see how it goes, right? That is just like a little, little tiny technology thing, and suddenly you've got uh and the right editor, right? I I I spent a, l I don't spend as much of my time on astounding, like I don't know, ten years ago I was much more into astounding than I am now. Right now, I'm really into Weird Tales because I'm getting lots of issues of Weird Tales. I've sort of done all of Astounding, And the thing is, is tiny, tiny little things. Like, who's going to be the editor? Most of the time, we don't know who's editing anything we're reading, right? Who's going to be the editor can have massive effects. So, when H.P. Lovecraft turns down the editorial, uh. <laughs> the editorship of Weird Tales because it wasn't, it was bad timing... Um, and didn't want to move to Chicago. that uh, who knows what would have happened? Maybe he would have stopped writing like Campbell or, or and maybe he might have given people story like if if he had done a Campbell, what would we have today? Or may, maybe what would we be missing? Because I can tell you, Farnsworth Wright, Wright was not a great writer. Um, yeah. but he was pretty good at getting some good stuff in that weird tales. and that that's a magazine with a legacy um, that in my mind is growing and growing, just like astounding sort of, I think astounding was really, it's still influential, right? Uh, Elon Musk is, is astounding. Basically. He's our version <laughs> of, of an astounding. He, he is uh, a Heinleinian character. If you've ever seen one, right?
3: Yeah, that's true.
0: He's, uh, he's got all these, all these ideas spinning and, and he's brushing around trying to get them all done. And, uh, I think it's it's this a book like this needs to be done for other magazine because there's so much value to be found in uh, when I read those old letters pages you can it's like a a fossil um it's an exact fossil of a dinosaur and we can see how our reality was shaped by the evolution that is fossilized in those pages yeah so amazing, or astounding. So you
1: think Elon Musk is a, a real-life D.D. Harriman, then?
0: Yeah, yeah, Harriman, that was the guy I was thinking of.
1: Yeah, it took mm-hmm. me a second to remember. Who was the, billion, who was the billionaire? The man who, who the, moon, right? the man who sold the moon, uh, The man who sold the moon. The man we, who wants to go to the moon so badly and only gets to at the end of his life and he dies there, which is so heartfelt I and tragic.
0: Mm. I was thinking, if, if Heinlein was alive today, what would he think of this and what would he think of that and that's kind of a trap because when you start thinking like you 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 sort of fossilize them at a certain period of time right if it was Heinlein 1955 and you ask him what do you think of Elon Musk he would like Tremendous, right (laughs) now if you ask him 1983 he might be well he's He's not uh, hard enough on the Soviets, or
3: whatever. Yeah, that <laughs> really. always bothers me when you look back at people, and, and so many people just choose one part of someone's life or one yes. like thing to to um characterize them, and it's like mm-hmm. no, that's a whole lifetime of a really complicated human being that we, mm-hmm. and a lot of it we don't even see. So
4: <laughs> yeah, how- I was I was thinking. I was a little bit bothered yesterday listening to this book, especially with the the Asimov the Nightfall story. Mm-hmm. That I, I must have heard it somewhere, but I didn't really record it, but it, it wasn't it was really brought home to me so I was listening to this that the, the, big, the whole point of nightfall was Campbell's idea. It wasn't Asimov's mm-hmm. idea. And, and, but and, and but that, you know, a story I really like of Heinlein's mm-hmm. "The Roads Must Roll." Now mm-hmm. I have to doubt, right? How much of that is Campbell? And actually, it seems like <laughs> quite a lot of that, the whole, maybe the whole point, right? The whole functionalist stuff mm. that sounds more like Campbell now, but at the same time, it is a web of people interacting. So that doesn't really matter, mm. right? Yeah. Creativity doesn't work that way. It's it's not an individual with his ideas just popping Which
3: them out. Which is funny right? that we All still these, think that. Like so many yeah. people still think that's how writing works. Like no.
0: <laughs> well, I I, th- I think the point was made um, pretty brilliantly. Uh, they talk about the Star Trek episode Trouble Tribbles Tribble, so Dar- David Gerald is accused of plagiarizing it from Heinlein and, and Heinlein says, well, there is this other story I kind of took it from. And that everything is is sort of in a reaction. And it, it's, it's, it, it's much more astounding to me to see a character like Wells, who I don't think of as having a massive precursor in anybody, which uh, doesn't, you know, like, he really did write science fiction, right? That's That's the amazing thing is we can look back at the time machine now and say, "Holy cow, that is absolutely 100% science fiction." Everything it's doing is trying to do what science fiction later on does, and that's amazing. (laughs) I keep saying amazing. I mean, astounding. And uh, the uh, a guy like um, uh, who who wrote uh, Last and First Men, Olaf Stapleton, right? Who his stuff has almost no characters right <laughs> last and first men and there's another one that it's just it's star Maker. It's science, star maker. Right. They're, they're science fiction but they're not there's no protagonist right it's so it takes uh it takes Campbell to sort of tr- t- the time traveler doesn't even have a name right and so when Campbell does is he says okay now we have rocket ships those crews have men in them, right? And those men are heroes. And I think that was an important sort of uh, improvement that he put into it. Um, and I there was I, I didn't go back and find any particular one thing except for this one page, I thought it was interesting because I think it it is is telling about our times here. This is on page three seventy uh, and three seventy one. As Tarrant listened, she tried. Uh, not to uh, try not to smile. Malzberg asked Campbell to sympathize with his critics, who were concerned by the dilemmas that technology presented. "Quote: These are the issues that we are going. Uh, these are the issues that are going to matter in science fiction for the next 50 years. It's going, it's got to explore the question of victimization." And the editor refused to budge. "I'm not interested in victims," Campbell said calmly. "I'm interested in heroes." I have to be. Science fiction is a problem-solving medium. Man is a curious animal who wants to know how things work and, given enough time, can find out. And then uh, the next line is, but not everyone is a hero, Malzberg said. Not everyone can solve problems. And I thought that, that, wow, that is really speaking to our time and and the way science fiction is today. And it is interesting because it's something that he really is right and wrong about, right? He, he's wrong that he didn't want to explore it, because science fiction should explore everything, I think. Um, but his absence of exploring it, right, it's only about superheroes, and it's only, only about the Superman. You can see why he didn't write pick up a lot of Philip K. Dick. Right? All of his heroes are non-heroes, right? They're schlubs, Mm-hmm. And, and the ones that aren't um, are, you know, there's still, there's something wrong with them, right? And that is very interesting because we all live in a, a world that's increasingly become science fictional um, in many respects. The technologies and ideas and things that are generated by science and, and ever-increasing knowledge affect our daily lives in a very real way. But, yeah, not everyone... Uh, is the hero of their life at the moment and if you're if not everyone can solve their own problems all the time we're in trouble we've got to explore that too and it's hard to do that in, in fiction because we have this model of, um, of uh, the hero and what, what strikes me as so interesting about reading Wells who again, it's astounding that he's not mentioned in here is that all of his his heroes are actually assholes, right? If you think of all of his famous stories, you know, the island of Dr. Moreau, that guy's no hero. If you think of um, the Valley of the Blind or the Country of the Blind, that guy's a monster. In fact, most of his characters are monsters. And so we've got the monsters, we've got the heroes. How do you tell the story from the victim's point of view?
2: I think I that's that. in part where you get the new age. I mean, the new wave, rather. Uh, again, pushing back against uh, against this um, Campbell. Alien revolution uh,
5: mm-hmm. because
2: then you have people like ballard saying uh, oh we've got uh, an apocalypse rather than let me apply myself uh, and apply science and we'll fix this problem he's like bring mm-hmm. it on i'm going to sit here and celebrate as the world you know drowns or goes up in flames mm-hmm. and and there's this sense that but that's also a generational thing too if you think about how that comes in the '60s, and there's this mistrust of this uh, of the sort of meta narrative that's created by the earlier generation, this generation that came out of World War II, and and pushing back even against the notion of heroism mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and how much efficacy we have as rational actors. You know, it's against the competent man becoming the Superman because uh, they tried that and look what we got. And so I think, again, it's setting up things that come later um, in a pushback move against what Campbell was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, that that passage is just really powerful in showing where he was and, and where science, you know, would come back around at, at a point, but, but where science fiction was also going to be pushing back really hard. I, I think there's also a, a mentioned the... Um, Wolheim earlier, and I think one of the great things about this book is that it made me want about 15 other books to be written, and one yeah. of them was K. Torrance. I want K. Torrance's story. But also, I'd love a, a follow-up companion volume. Been, there's been work done, but uh, not not in this exact same vein. Um, on the Futurians, because Walheim yeah. definitely became this great, uh, this great editor, but the Futurians also was in the same way that Campbell created writers, the Futurians created editors. So you also have uh, people like Pohl. You have people like um, Judith Merrill uh, coming out of that. Um, mm-hmm. Pinching you know, Heinlein um, back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or, or, exactly.
0: Or, or the equivalent thereof. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh,
2: uh, John Michelle. Uh, you know these people who who were uh, shaped science fiction from another angle and in a way they were part of the pushback too uh and so i I think there's just we only see the tip of the iceberg there as here's another community but that community um was also self-aware and was also uh, a group of people who were um uh you know Kornbluth and Pole working together, mm. um, how they sort of uh, fed off of each other and, and encouraged each other and had their own conversation going. And it's it's fascinating the things you glimpse out of the corner of your eye in this book, I think. Mm.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I pointed out, uh, I guess, on Twitter, I,
0: I think to you guys as well. Well, maybe not. Maybe I never sent it to you. Um, I, years ago when I was... Uh, oh, it's 2011, so yeah, about 10 years ago. I live under that. I was uh, really into Astounding, and um, I was making note of Arena. You know that story by Frederick Brown that's mentioned mm. here. Yep, the, um,
1: that became the Star Trek episode, among other things.
0: Right. So the the point I, I, I made, like I just watched yesterday, the, or this week, um, the fourth episode of season two of The Orville. What I love about The Orville is it's, it's just the Star Trek Next Generation new adventures, right? It's new Star Trek Next Generation, follows the same formula, terrific show, really enjoy watching it, right? And and I, I made a note I uh, on Twitter. I said, the A plot, you know how Star Trek Next Generation had an A plot and a B plot? D- Data learns a new lesson <laughs> about Pinocchio, <laughs> um captain kirk or whoever it is uh Riker, has an encounter with a devious alien or what you know however they put it in the uh, tv guide oh gosh right? um I, in fact there's a great twitter account that is uh i think just new new season yeah it's like
1: season eight star trek and these couple of these random things
0: right yeah they pair two characters together and have something funny happen right um Anyways, I, I, point, I point out, the A plot of the Orville Season 2, Episode 4 is in the tradition of Enemy Mine, which is Barry Malzberg, right? Uh, Hell in the Pacific, which is, I think, of as arena done as a World War Two movie. I don't know if you guys know this movie. Hell in the Pacific? No? no. Okay, it's uh, Lee Marvin, who I think is terrific, and uh, Toshiro Mifune. Um Oh, sure. So, yes. Lee Marvin is a, a, a you know, marine... Uh, fighter, air, uh, airplane fighter, um, uh, pilot, and uh Mifune is a Japanese fi- pi- pilot. They shoot each other down in the Pacific, and then they spend the rest of the movie on the island by themselves. It's Enemy Mine, except <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know they don't have an alien baby, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but it's, a, it's, it's sort of a, a straight up World War II version of Enemy Mine, right? Um, and that's based on Arena, and then. I noted it's done on regular Star Trek. Star Trek Next Generation has done an episode. Star Trek Deep Space Nine did an episode. Star Trek Enterprise did an episode, all based on on this same premise, right? Two people get shot down and have to survive enemies on a planet together, right? And even Space 1999 had an episode. Um, and all of these are variations on an even older story called The Most Dangerous Game. And this is the amazing thing is is even when you think you're watching something completely new and fresh, you're wrong. Because if I, if I can trace all these connections and a lot of times the writers won't even be aware that they're working, they're basing it on sort of a, another version that they saw. Right. so mm-hmm. movies like Predator, that actually is another story of the da- most dangerous game. Right. They're all these sort of. It is a web of sort of uh, evolution going out from different points. And I'm sure the most dangerous game has a- antecedents as well. At some point, you know, somebody sitting around a campfire invented everything. If you, <laughs> if you think about so Gilgamesh. Did Gilgamesh have to so play? True. There you go. Yep. and yeah, <laughs> do. There you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I, I also wanted to note I, later on while I was watching the episode um I noted oh and the B plot is a nod to Star Trek's Corvamite maneuver. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. And, and they have a Kobayashi Maru test as well. That's like wow. Right? If you're just watching it for the first time, you don't know all this, right? That if if you don't have this giant uh, sort of web of Star Trek watching, you wouldn't know how all of this is sort of it's retelling and rethinking, and, man, that's a good show. That's, oh.
3: Yeah, that's why, um, like, Amy's genre history and stuff is so mm. interesting, like, tracing these ideas back through their evolution and mm-hmm. seeing how early, they grow.
1: Yeah, seeing early iterations so that when it shows up, like, oh, okay, so that came from there. Thank you, Amy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, I agree with that. that it all goes back. It all goes, and and it's uh, such a gift when you mm. know it. It's such a special gift to, to be able to see it. I know what you just did there.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I I I do think we should uh, just listen to one more time. Uh, the, not just because um, Evan was reading it to his daughter, but because I think it's really an important story. I, I don't like most of the stuff I read by Sturgeon, but uh, one of my favorite stories is. Microcosmic God. Um, this is uh, on page 124 of the paper book. Um, and Sturgeon's finest work. Finally, I agree with <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the like the greatest story in this in, of this era. Is like now that one's not the best one. You're forgetting about.
3: It. <laughs> it's good that the things you disagreed with are all sort of more subjective.
0: Yeah, very. <laughs> and and Sturgeon's finest work, and perhaps the single most spellbinding story ever to appear under Campbell's editorship, was Microcosmic God which was published in April 1941. Its hero, a biochemist named Kidder, might have been a thinly disguised version of Campbell himself. Quote, he was always asking questions and didn't mind very much when they were embarrassing. If he was talking to someone who had knowledge, he went in there and got it, leaving his victims breathless. If he was talking to someone whose knowledge was already in his possession, he only asked repeatedly, how do you know? Uh, that part, I think, is the part that Campbell was uh, was sort of lesser on was the how do you know because mm-hmm. he didn't apply that to a lot of the things he was thinking about. Good point. But um, that's a very very powerful. It's it's a kind of a it's a meta story almost, uh, microcosmic god because it's it's about what happens when you read astounding right. You you go uh-huh. off an island and you start. There's a story by um, George R. R. Martin who, who does get a mention later on in the book, um, uh, and we did a show on it. Um, Sand Kings is kind of a retelling of
1: Microcosmic God, yeah, yeah,
0: right. I but, see, I see the that. Difference, but the difference is he's doing it um, out of sort of uh, entertainment and cruelty, and he, he, he instead of he's trying to advance science, he's just trying to entertain his guests. Right and amuse himself for an afternoon because he's rich, and boy does he get a nice comeuppance.
1: Also, um, uh, what's we call it, Jesse? Um, neutron star. Mm. Dro- right, right forward. I mean, consider the aliens progress at a.
0: Oh uh, no, you mean Dragon's Egg? Dragon's
1: Egg, not, yeah, yeah. Dragon's Egg, selling so neutron. Thank you. Dragon's Egg has that sort of idea as well because mm-hmm. the eventually the aliens on the neutron star exceed the humans in terms of their technology.
0: Hmm. Uh, I didn't see any mention of here. Maybe I'm wrong, but was there no mention of Hal Clement at all? Because he he was really important to a certain kind of science fiction. I think he's the exemplar of it, right, before Niven shows up.
2: Um, there's two references. Um, okay. Let me, let me see here. I'm just looking in the index. <laughs> I didn't pull that out of my head or anything. Oh. Um, you he certainly – oh, wait, it, just in a list – Okay. Here. Um, science fiction luminaries, but not not dealt with in any uh, particular way. No, I agree. I I, uh, I was there. expecting. Finally, to see I more. found
0: something wrong with this book. Finally, <laughs> it's missing a uh, uh, an ode to Al- Hal Clement,
4: um, who you know. But is- you can't do that. Like I don't know. Is this guy a historian? This Alec Novella Lee. You or do, do you- not know how big
0: a job this would have been. It is. I have hundreds of issues of astounding yeah. i have i've looked through pretty much all of them i've not read almost any of campbell's columns man the guy might have been a good editor his writing is so long winded mm-hmm. <laughs> he's he's not that great a, uh, like uh, uh, by the way the titles um almost all of them are, are either from story titles or like brass tacks that's a a column in right so they're all references twilight obviously is a story by him. He's he, he was much better, I think as an editor than he was as a writer, because when you read uh, his most famous story, who goes there, you come away kind of disappointed because, uh, and I think that, that there's a criticism that is right in this book, Alec Naval, Lee's saying, you know, it, it doesn't give you kind of what you want. He doesn't dwell on the philosophic. If Philip K. Dick had written that story, you know, if Campbell, had somehow got Philip K. Dick into his office and says, "I got an idea for you."
4: But what about the Stewart stories? I mean, I haven't read except Twilight. I haven't read any of them. But I got the sense from Novella Lee that that in the Stewart stories, he did dwell more on the philosophical. I mean, certain Twilight has that. He didn't.
0: He doesn't dwell. Uh, he dwells on other things. But I I didn't find it yeah. to be. Like uh, sure, if I, get it, the you, but... I,
4: I mean I got the idea that there's kind of two halves. There's like two mm-hmm. types of storytellers, and when he wanted to tell one type of story, he he did it as Stewart.
0: Honestly, right? I haven't read like he, sure. he he has a couple of novels. I haven't read those. I I didn't find him to be an a, an amazing or an astounding uh, writer.
1: Hey, Jess, Jesse, I just looked through my uh, co- mm-hmm. my my Kindle copy of the book. Clement is mentioned in one sentence. Here it is in full. The early 50s saw the appearance of several classics, including Hal Clement's Mission of Gravity, but the Dick most go. famous story was Tom Codwin's The Cold Equations. That's mm. it. Yeah.
0: Well, it, you know, he he, he, he wasn't amazing. He <laughs> might have been astounding, but he, he, he had a, a re, but he really did something very important, which is uh, do hard SF um, and do it in novel length, I guess. I don't know. There, there, I there's a lot with, of with these on.
4: kind of historical narratives. You're pruning so much.
2: Yeah,
0: when you yeah.
4: try to put together a story like this guy does.
2: Mm-hmm. It's All a right. remarkable achievement, yeah, it really. Is, is. The that he was able yeah. to
4: tell the story of these four people and the magazine. You know, if he doesn't talk about some people we like, I, I don't think that's a fair criticism, really. No, it's because not. Every good, historian not just, is basically history is a pruning job. Yeah. You prune down to a story that you can tell because if you just lay out the you know everything that's there you end up with
0: no uh, this is a really like, important book uh, i i don't you know i get a lot of paper books in the mail and i do not read almost any of them because i i'm an audio guy but when i started thinking about this book i did go looking for the audio and i'm very glad that i got to read it because it is I want more books just like this, you know, mm-hmm. big, thick books that really do a, a, an astounding job of, mm-hmm. on their subject.
3: This yes. podcast will have to come with a drinking game at the start of it for every time you say
2: astounding.
0: Kind would amazing.
2: By now, the listeners will be brain dead. Yeah. <laughs> But I also love the fact that this is not – and Naval uh, says this in the book, but um, th- this is also an invitation for more. And so uh, between the way he uh, – these glorious footnotes or endnotes, they're just wonderful, um, and also his, his bibliography and the questions he asks, again, I've, I've listed, what, three books now that I want written ba- just based on, on this text, um, but I'm sure it will inspire – uh, even more, this is a gift that's going to keep on giving because it's it's pointing out um, that we need more works like this and where we need these works and the, some of these voices like K. Torrance who who you know will be lost if we don't have um, books uh, about them and their lasting import and influence in shaping the whole uh, the whole dialogue. It's just it's it's. Uh, I'm really excited to see what what happens after this, when people read it and are moved to go do their own thing.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And even beyond science fiction, like some editor, I guess, you know, discovered or promoted Dashiell Hammett mm. and the Continental Op. Where, where yeah. were those things published?
0: The Black Mask.
4: The Black uh-huh. Mask. Yeah. We like, need, we need that on, is books. just as revolutionary, of course. It, it's it's asking entirely different questions than yeah. this than Campbell is, but it's that's just as revolutionary. a turned around the same period of time, actually, right? right. That's in The days as well. Yep. And uh,
0: there uh, there, are, there are so many magazines that are sort of uninteresting to anybody now today. You know, the railroading magazines. There's so many. <laughs> I get a lot of them because you know when people are buying lots of. Uh, of old pulp magazines to scan, they buy what they want, but they also buy whatever's available and cheap because they just want to preserve it. And so you get all these like Westerns. You can't believe how, how big Westerns were. in the pulp mags, oh, huge, right? Try and find a Western book today. And new Western book wasn't like a reprint. Uh, good luck. They exist, but they are not like dominate at all. And, and the fact that we have this uh, book on, on a book, on a magazine from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, 70s. Isn't Analog still going today? Sure. I think so. Yeah. Right? And the thing is, if this book did nothing else, it taught me, finally, why was this magazine called Analog? I had no idea. I'm <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a stupid name? Shouldn't it be digital? I mean, at least that's futuristic. But now, like, oh, it's a metaphor. Duh. I, yeah, <laughs> but I know I, that, too. I, I would say that you should have kept it as astounding. Because yeah. uh, mm-hmm. as... as uh, and the thing is, is today, I believe it's still called Am- uh, Analog Science Fiction and Fact, and there's no fact. right? He pushed that fact in there, into the title. He wanted to make it a book about... Or a magazine about... about Dianetics.
2: Dianetics.
0: Dianetics.
2: <laughs> so there was no fact in it then. <laughs> yeah.
0: And uh, he's mentioned it in here a few times, uh, Willie Lee, um, Willie Lee, really important to science fiction and to to the space program. Um, he he gets pushed out of Astounding, and he's guess where he goes? He goes to uh, Galaxy, and he I'm pretty sure it's Galaxy, yeah. And he he's always writing about about spacesuit design and uh, life on other planets, and he he's doing all sorts of amazing work to Try and make the reality that is behind the science fiction fiction more real, more possible, and saying what is possible and educate. Uh, this is this is something that I think is really important that uh, Astounding was doing, and then obviously Galaxy was doing, is you know giving the writers a grounding in what is possible and what is not possible. Mm. And Asimov, what a man! If there was ever a mensch for Helping people understand the world around them. His of his 400 books, right, that are he, he made, none of the ones that are um, nonfiction are in print apparently. Oh.
5: Uh,
0: oh, right. And he was so important. That's what he was saying to uh, writers who who uh, were complaining about low pay rates. He says, get into the science uh, science and journalism because. Not only is it important, it's also good pay. And we need that. It helps, you know, I, I don't read a lot of modern science fiction, um, but I really like, I'd like to, I'd like to.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's important to sort of know what's possible, know what isn't possible. So, yeah. that, you know, even a, a guy who's not so good at it, like Hubbard, can do something, Right. And not just not just broadsides like that's one of the thing that he did with astounding. He's turned it out of uh, you know a uh, rocket ships firing E E Doc Smith sort of we can solve everything with a wave of the hand and turned it into more like details on how how that yeah the Dean Drive might not have worked but the idea behind it is to find something that a reactionless space drive that'd be a great idea for a story right? Hello Mr. Larry Niven. Right. That's his whole thing is, what if you could do this? Right. That's I, I want more of that. So I'm very happy to have seen this book. Oh, we definitely need one for Galaxy magazine and and Black Mask. More biographies of these great. I don't know, pulp pulp era.
4: Mags.
2: Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed.
4: I, I'm looking at Asimov's not like nonfiction Books just from the Wikipedia. <laughs> the world of nitrogen. That's a book. The right, world what? of carbon.
1: I've never. The heard realm
4: of numbers. That. The realm of measures.
3: Wow, he was so imagery, cool.
4: The neutrino. Three volumes. Understanding physics. Photosynthesis. Please explain. Science essay collection.
1: I I I love this essays. Essays. I think it. I got collected all the time in like I think it was from the magazine of fantasy science fiction. I had a copy of Asimov on Numbers I I had two copies and I wore them down to destruction because I loved those essays so mm-hmm. much. It's like I can understand science. Thanks for yeah, No, he Asimov. makes it super
0: clear. His uh-huh. writing is super, super clear. And uh, you know, I, I know I don't know if you guys noticed, but one of the tweets I sent you was for Campbell's book of collected editorials. It was an ad for it. That's a book I've never ever seen in real life. right Mm -hmm. he he was probably a lot better uh in the room with you spinning story ideas than he was uh as a i found his writing to be for very um not reader friendly like asimov so reader friendly right Uh almost too reader friendly because you feel like you've learned you come away knowing everything
4: um Oh, here's one for you, Jesse. This is an Asimov book, Lecherous Limericks, the first of several <laughs> compilations of dirty limericks by celebrated author Isaac Asimov. The uh, 100 limericks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The first limerick in the collection is There Was a Sweet Girl of Decatur Who Went to the Sea on a Freighter. She was screwed by the Master, in utter disaster, but the <laughs> all made up for it later.
5: <laughs> oh, my God. oh, my Lord. Oh, my oh
3: and now, yeah, thinking about him as well, like with all of his <laughs> bra snapping and carry on that, like, just makes so much sense.
0: <laughs> um, and he did he, he did uh, books on the Bible. Um, uh, he has annotated Don Juan, Shakespeare? Paradise Lost, Gilbert and Sullivan, Shakespeare, Gulliver's Travels, right? And poetry. Um, he, he was a writing machine and and learning machine. Um I heard an anecdote about Asimov, and I was like, oh, my God, he is exactly who, like, I have a a Jewish grandfather or had a Jewish grandfather who read all of Isaac Asimov magazines, um, but more importantly, he also read Ellery Queen, and that's the thing is, people think of Asimov as a a science fiction writer. Uh, He wrote uh, tons of fantasy, not fantasy, tons of um, mysteries, too, right? Mm-hmm. He, he wrote in lots of genres he didn't write any uh, cowboy western stuff as far as I know but or railroading stuff but he, he wrote a lot of genres and um, the, the, the joy of reading and the joy of writing is throughout his stuff and and, and one of the things I heard about Asimov I don't, I don't remember where it was but his mind was always active so when uh, he gets into an elevator and this is how I think of myself too like, or I note about myself. I get into an elevator by myself. Um, I'm like looking at the manufacturer of the of the uh, of the plate that's on there, and how does this work? And it, you know, does this have this kind of hook? Like, just caring about like you, you take a teacup and you turn it upside down and see where it's made, right? Mm. That kind of curiosity is so rare that that's what drove him. Right, he just was really curious and wanted to know the answers to everything, and that's Mm -hmm. as soon as he found them, he wrote them down and made a book out of it. Very, very powerful, powerful force in reality.
1: Yeah, I I, I think we need to do End of Eternity as uh, as a read along podcast, Jesse. (laughs) I
0: think I might have done it already, but I
1: I just, I just (laughs) did you
0: check?
1: No, you have not.
0: Okay, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to tell now.
1: Uh, that's why there's a search function on your website, and I just True. checked to make sure. All Has right, I'll any- look into it. Putting that marker down.
0: Thank you very much, everybody.
2: Thank you, Jesse. This
0: yeah. Fun. Thanks.
2: Oh, what yeah. a great conversation! Thank you so much for having me and letting me be involved.
0: Well, thank you for joining us.
3: We'll get you yeah, was a fun book. <laughs>
0: This has been the SFF Audio podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. In my hand here. hmm <laughs> Evan, you so. still with us? Yeah, I'm here. Good, good. Okay. Um, uh, Evan's all sorts of academic as well. So um, we got all we got sorts the academic of
4: academic. In. Yeah, all sorts <laughs> of academic. history and uh, PKD and um, Melville. (laughs) Well, well, my training is 19th century kind of labor history, Pacific labor history. Brilliant. But, Mm -hmm. But now I'm mostly just dealing with, well, I got my podcast where I'm just redoing the American writers, but then I get, you know, added to that, the Philip Dick stuff, which I've been working on for a while
0: it's it's good stuff
4: oh, currently some lovecraft and race stuff is
0: are you seeing your numbers going up yeah my numbers are going up a little bit good good i mean you did uh, we talked about this before you you picked the wrong topic um yeah. books if you want to be popular don't pick books <laughs> they don't like those things <laughs> talk about well, tv shows and trump you'll do much better um, <laughs> anyways, let's no,
4: your up. idea is right to do do the do what's uh, signed, right?
0: Oh yes, uh, uh, yeah. Signed.
4: Yeah. Uh, so yeah we'll, we'll see if I if I get around to, to doing you know Mark Twain or something. Oh yeah, Mark. But I, I'm really kind of committed. I think when I get back to to Taiwan and get my books, I'm, I think I'm going to bring do political writing. Tocqueville. Ooh, okay. Tocqueville He's and like- uh, Lincoln and things like that. I don't know if I'll get any listeners for that. Probably it's just.
0: No, you will not. <laughs> but. Uh, well, <laughs> you're about Tocqueville, right? No. If, the if Trump. Tocqueville. Yeah. Of- yeah. No, it's it, it's you will not get any, <laughs> any, uh, <laughs> any listeners for that.
2: But it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And Tocqueville so relevant right now. I think they're, you know, that that would be brilliant. So I, I'll listen. <laughs>
4: All right. Yeah, but I, my, my energy has been fo- focused on getting through the Philip Dick stuff. So you almost done, I deep... Well, I, I just recorded Full My Tears, The Policeman Said. There you so go. It's 1974. I think there's only eight books left. And um, then the uh, posthumous stuff. Which,
0: we got a request to do the... Um, uh, I was going to save this for our next Philip K. Dick show, but um, we got a request to do the... Uh, uh, what's the Ganymede Takeover? Um, which is the one I've been, I guess, putting off because I was hoping to get in contact with Ray Nelson again.
1: Yeah, you, yeah, we, we've do- yeah, we've talked about that, but yeah, you just pushed it off and pushed it off because you're
0: maybe hoping- I'll just maybe I'll just try one more push and we'll just put a date on it and see what we can do. I because um can't push it off forever. He's gonna die. We're all gonna die. That's what this book is not. true.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Apparently, um, you can't just uh. Uh, you know, steal steal your body enough to uh, go forever, unless unless you're Hubbard, in which case yeah, unless you <laughs>
3: <laughs> there are ways.
0: <laughs> All right, I'm gonna get the
4: Wikipedia. Oh, but Jesse, I should thank you. You're the one who said next time because I was reading the Science Fiction Hall of Fame to my daughter. and You're the one who said you have to read Microcosmic God to her, I'm and I skipped over thought. that, thinking it was a bit too tough for her, but she really liked it.
0: How old is she? She's young, right? She's twelve now. Oh yeah, that's good age for that. Um, I I think it's still terrific. Uh, Maybe we'll get into that because um, that's kind of in this this uh, collection. I hope you guys all saw those. That I was thinking. Is this is this online harassment? (laughs) No, the tsunami of of tweets you (laughs) did. Yes, I saw those. Gonna get a bunch of blocks from (laughs) keep sending pictures and columns and. More Scientology stuff and dianetics. <laughs> I get mad at me.
1: Say for the podcast.
0: All right, here we go. Um, Amy, uh, you'll just say, oh, "Hi, I'm Amy." At the end of this uh, group of people, okay? So okay. Be Jesse, uh, uh, Paul, Marissa, Evan, and then you. Okay. Here we go.